Good morning, and welcome to our online audience. Let's go ahead and uh, begin with, uh, with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for an opportunity to study, and we ask for enlightenment of your spirit, and we can uh, delve deeper into the truths that you have for us and experience the transformation of heart that, that you've promised. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in the uh, study guide, Stewardship Motives of the Heart, and the title this week is Habits of a Steward, and our, our memory verse is Psalms 119, 9-11, which reads, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, how can a person change their ways? Can we get people to change their ways by passing laws to require conformity? Can we get less drug use by passing laws that make drug use illegal? Can we get less murder by passing laws that make murder illegal? So why will passing laws not stop criminal behavior? Why? There's a reason. It's an obvious reason. It's kind of a self... You know, because passing laws that, that, that don't, doesn't change hearts. And these, these problems come out of, of the heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Selfishness is in the heart, and that's the real problem. So how can we get people, how can people, how can you and I change our ways? What was described in the memory text? By taking heed according to your word. What's it say? Described in the memory text, heeding God's word. What does it mean to heed? To listen, to comprehend, to pay attention, to consider, to think about, to ultimately choose to agree and apply. That's what it means, doesn't it? Yeah, and if, and, and if you do that, if you heed God's word, which is his design laws, ultimately talks about his commandments, his design laws, you heed, you stop, you think, you consider, you listen, you process, and then you choose what's actually healthy, does that actually change your ways? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Notice, this is not an arbitrary um, checklist of things to do. It's actually a transformation of the inner workings of your being. By beholding. The lesson is about habits. If you read the first paragraph, it says, your habits reveal purpose and direction in your life. Stewards who develop good habits are the most faithful stewards. Daniel had the habit of daily prayer. Paul's custom was to uh, be in the synagogue. He also writes, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. We are to cultivate good habits in order to replace bad ones. Our habits only behavioral, like prayer, attending church, what foods we eat? Or could we have habits of thought? Habits of how we interpret and process information. Emotional reactions that are habitual or habit-based. Can we do that? So how do such habits form? And how can we change them? Choice. So what determines the habit, your brain or your mind? So let's, let's, let's talk about the difference briefly between the brain and your mind. Okay. Your brain has a hundred billion neurons with over a trillion other supporting cells to keep them healthy. And each neuron can have up to 10,000 connections to other neurons, which means 40 quadrillion interconnections. And I know everybody knows exactly what 40 quadrillion is. So I'm going to help you with that number because it's really a number we can't process. 
You can get your mind around a million, though, can't you? Get your mind around a million. So if we were to, to, to go back in time one million seconds, we'd go back 11 and a half days. Now, a thousand million is a billion. If we went back in time a billion seconds, we'd go back 32 years. Now, a thousand billion is a trillion. If we went back in time a trillion seconds, what are you thinking? Like 1890? No, it's 31,000 BC. And a thousand trillion is a quadrillion. And if you went back a thousand, uh, if you went back a quadrillion seconds, you've now gone back to 24 million BC. And your brain has 40 quadrillion interconnections, which would be equivalent of 1 billion, excuse me, yeah, 1 billion BC, if you went back 40 quadrillion seconds. Are you getting your mind around this? Let's keep going. So your brain has these 40 quadrillion interconnections, which are made up of of quadrillions of, of dendrites and axons. Now, within each dendrite, now there's quadrillions of dendrites, Within each single dendrite, there are 10 million microtubules. 10 million microtubules. And each microtubule is constructed of billions of tubulin molecules, individual molecules. And each tubulin molecule has 445 amino acids, which are constructed of various different atoms, like carbon and oxygen and so forth. Now, these microtubules do various things. They provide structure to your neurons. They are little transport pathways that transport molecules up and down the cells and the neurons. Uh, they provide structure. But interestingly enough, the microtubules are the most likely place where your mind, your, it actually makes a quantum computer, where your individuality, your identity, your thinking takes place and where choices happen and where memories are stored in these microtubules. Your microtubules can, and your brain, your brain can do 100 trillion operations a second. That's happening in your brain. 100 trillion operations a second. Do you feel it? Do you, do you feel it? <laughs> See, in, in the quantum processing, down in the microtubules, uh, these, as these atoms are so closely connected, they create these electron clouds that they share, and these electron clouds remain in a position of uncertainty, which allows you in function, in your mind, to contemplate different perspectives. Is this the way it should go? Is that the way it should go? You're contemplating different views. You're considering. And as you make a decision, as you make a choice, then the electron clouds in various parts of the microtubules will collapse and make a confirmation change in the microtubule structurally, and you have just changed yourself, formed a belief and or a memory. Your choices actually determine the ultimate position of these electron clouds, which is how memories and beliefs are stored. Repeated choosing will then cause these uh, patterns to form pathways that structurally change neural nets, which form habits. And thus, let's say something simple most of us might be a little familiar with, taking a music lesson. You take a music lesson, and in the beginning, which, whatever instrument you're playing, the flute, the clarinet, the piano, whatever it is, in the beginning, you have to make conscious, focused, purposeful effort to coordinate your motor movement hitting a certain note, a certain finger position with a certain symbol on the page. 
That's purposeful, conscious. I'm thinking, okay, that note means this. I have to do this with this finger. And it's very thoughtful and purposeful. But as you, and as you do that, you are firing certain pathways. As you repetitively do that, make that decision, then what happens is your brain begins to wire in pathways. And there comes a time, if you keep practicing, where you see that and you're not making a conscious choice. Your, your fingers are just moving. You're not even thinking about, really, that I have to move that finger when I see that note. You're not thinking that anymore. It's habituated. You've made a pathway for this. Well, this is true in the way you think. You make certain interpretations. You see certain events. You make certain beliefs. You make certain conclusions. And then what happens? You come in the future, and you make a new experience, and it automatically gets processed through the pathways you've previously constructed. (coughs) This is why every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. This is why a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Their neural net will not change unless they actually have a change in their internal belief. And the change in their internal belief, and so this is why Satan's power, by the way, is the power of lies. He gets you to believe lies, you make those conclusions, you actually make confirmation change inside yourself. This is why the truth will set you free. Where does truth have its power? In your mind, in your thought processing. And this is why legal theories of salvation are lies that trap people into belief systems with no power to transform. Because the legal systems of salvation are about some legal process happening in a system of courtrooms somewhere in the cosmos, distant and far away from you. When in reality, it's... Look at the metaphors of Scripture. We're actually teaching what I'm trying to describe for you here today. Circumcision is the heart by the Holy Spirit. Write my law in your heart and minds. Be reborn. Have the mind of Christ. Recreated in the inner person. Take out the heart of stone. Put in the heart of flesh. They're all actually talking about a transformation happening inside of you as we ingest the word or partake of the bread or, and the wine or partake of the flesh and the, and the blood, which are metaphorically, we're taking Christ or the truth. He's the word made flesh. We're taking those truths into ourselves. As we take those truths into our minds and comprehend, understand, agree, and choose, then we actually experience renewal, transformation of our being. The legal uh, modes of salvation cheat people, trick people into believing they have some salvation declared to them when they've had no actual transformation within. And that's why if you look at the history of Christianity, you can see many people who promote themselves as Christian who go out and do the most dastardly deeds, but as long as they confess it and ask forgiveness, they're okay. And they continue to live and run their mafiosos and and everything else that they do. But they go to confession every week and they confess their sins and get the legal pardon and they're good. And it's not just Catholicism that does that. Many Christians fall into that trap. So what makes the choices for you, your brain or your mind? Your mind. Your brain is the substrate, the platform upon which your mind exists and operates. The brain will process sensory information and provide it to your mind, but your mind interprets the meaning and thus makes the choices. You hear a loud bang, your brain will reflexively startle you and bring you to alertness, and then you will go, what was that? And your mind will then interpret. That was a car backfiring. And as soon as your mind interprets the conclusion it was a car backfiring, it sends immediately, without you having to try a signal, it's okay, it's safe, relax, unwind. If your mind interprets that's, a, that's a somebody with a gun in the hallway heading in here, 
Same bang. Now you fired a different pathway. I'm, I'm under threat. You you're get more stressed. You take different actions. <clears throat> when your mind makes a choice, those choices immediately determine which brain pathways are firing. The recurrent, repeated firing of the pathways form networks that become automated, i.e. habits. Many networks or habits are formed in childhood, before the age of accountability. Formed from the experiences of the child, not through didactic learning, not through purposeful effort. As adults, though, we can step back and evaluate. For instance, most of us were raised to believe certain religious beliefs. Where did we, where did we learn those religious beliefs? We were taught or told or experienced and exposed in childhood. We didn't actually sit down as kids and think through and look at the evidentiary basis of whether that's a logical and reasonable belief or not. We trusted somebody, whether it's parent, teacher, pastor, somebody. We trusted them and they believed and they're good, so we accept that. Just like we accept the sky is blue because we were told it's blue. And this is why many people believe many different religions around the world because that's what they were taught. But as adults... This is what we do in evangelism. We go out and tell adults, hey, there's another way to understand reality. Hey, there's a different version of God that you've never considered. Hey, look at this evidence. Weigh it out. Draw a conclusion. And people can change their beliefs. But they have to first step back and begin reevaluating new events and new processes. The more certain we are of an idea, a belief, in other words, the more certain we have, I am certain this is the way it is, the less able we are to change. Think about some of the people you maybe had conversations with about your view of God. The more certain you are, and the reason for that is your decision, your choice collapses the electron clouds that form and the confirmation changes in the microtubules determining your beliefs and your memories and your ultimate neural path and your character. And so the more confidence and certainty you have, the less likely you are to allow uncertainty, which means those electron clouds to re reemerge and you consider different options no you have closed down the option pathways i am certain it's this way i don't need to consider that way and so what happens for people in a position of certainty they require an event they require something to cause them to be uncertain this is why our, we rejoice in our trials and tribulations because they build character what do they do they require step back and go wait i thought it worked this way it didn't work this way what's happening and we start asking questions doesn't the lord care doesn't he love and then we have to look for new evidence. What does it mean? What I was certain about, it's not actually working. People who... Otherwise known as cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance, that's right. But it opens us up to make changes. And as we do, we modify our new pathways, make new confirmation changes in the microtubules. So children who were abused as kids, if the experience is not processed truthfully and accurately with us, with in the life of a child, it never is processed truthfully and accurately because they're not capable at that time of processing it truthfully and accurately. Thus, those events begin internalized with beliefs that are false, which makes confirmation changes in their brain. And they grow up with certain automated habits or pathways now of processing information. So some of the things that kids ha happen to kids that are mistreated or abused, they form beliefs. I'm ugly. I'm gross. I'm worthless. I'm not lovable. I'm too horrible for my parents to love. I'm too horrible for other people to love. I'm no good. I'm ruined. Uh, all kinds of ideas like this. These are deeply embedded now patterns, habits of thinking, and thus they begin processing the world through this pattern. And so something happens. 
the normal things of life. The normal things that all happens in all of us. You're at school and, 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 uh, and you trip and fall in the playground. Everybody laughs at you. Normal, innocent things. But this person processes that event as, see, I'm a loser. I shouldn't even come out in the playground. Uh, people are laughing at me. Nobody likes me. I knew I was worthless. I should, I should go kill myself. Because they have a habituated pattern that innocuous events get processed through. This is what psychotherapies do. Psychotherapies step back and give people a new way of perceiving that they then consider psychotherapy. The psychotherapist does not change the individual. Really, the psychotherapist acts, if they're a really good one, as a mirror. And think about when you physically look into a mirror. What does the mirror do for you? If it's a good mirror, not a funhouse mirror, there are funhouse mirrors. You look in a funhouse mirror, you get a really warped reflection coming back, right? And, and those are people in our lives that give us feedback are often very warped. The healthiest therapists are the ones that give us the most accurate, honest feedback. So when you look in a good mirror, you see an, a, a closely accurate representation of your physical being. And you might look in the mirror and you might see dirt on your face. Does the mirror make a judgment about that? Does the mirror remove the dirt? No, this is what a good therapist does. They just reflect back honestly and accurately the processes, how you're seeing, the automated pathways, the beliefs, the so forth, and, and offer oftentimes a different alternative way to see it. But the therapist does not change the thought processing. The therapist makes no choices for the individual. But as those are offered, it can cause the cognitive dissonance. It can cause a different perspective. Wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. Hmm, I'm going to process that. Think about it. Yeah, that makes more sense. Confirmation changes happening in the brain. New pathways are being formed. Characters being changed. This is the whole purpose of Christianity. To heal and change the inner workings of sinful beings who live in fear and selfishness to beings who can live in love and trust. This is the gospel message. That's why we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. This is the battle. And this is again why I am so, you probably picked up on this, if you, you know, it's a little subtle, I'm not always overt about it, but you probably picked up why I'm so hostile against the legal views. Because the legal views cheat people from this. I want to see people have real transformation. And I got passionate about this because what I do in my office. And I see people coming in really hurting. And I see when they can reprocess, they can see truth, they can bring godly principles to bear in their understanding and their practices, they heal, they get better. Always works. Sunday's lesson. Any questions about that, by the way? Isn't that fascinating stuff about our brain? So I love the point you're bringing out. If they have a certain belief, 
that belief can be an obstacle to healing. If you had more faith, you wouldn't need medicine. Classic lie in Christianity. Uh, I, I actually had someone tell me a week ago that their grandson in one of the local Christian schools in the Chattanooga area was told by a professor that having depression is sin. And her grandson and the other students argued with the professor and rejected the professor or the teacher's view that in fact it's a physiological condition, not sin. But this idea is damaging. To tell people that is destructive. Yes? You had mentioned that the difficulty of changing that opinion was related to its deepness or its, its entrenchment. The converse is also true that the more firmly it's held and rightly held, then the harder the circumstances you can withstand and still believe that. You mentioned that event to make that change, that's what happened to Paul. But when he made that change, then he was able to go to his death believing the right thing. Yeah, and that's well said. And so when we believe in the truth, okay, and we have conviction and understanding, and the greater our comprehension, understanding, and experience with the truth, then we can't be shaken from it. Okay? People, and, and the attitudes are different. People who actually have the truth and have a mindset like... Uh, opposite of those who are lost in Thessalonians. Those who are lost in Thessalonians are lost because, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be saved. But these are lovers of truth. And because they're lovers of truth, they recognize, hey, I'm a finite being, so I'm open to grow in truth. I'm open to learn truth. I don't fear new insights. I don't fear new perspectives, but they have to work in reality. They have to be evidence-based. They have to be consistent with my understanding of God's character and the way he works. And so you can see people who are settled into certain unshakable truths like God's character of love and how his methods work and so forth. They're open to consider new ideas without threat. But people have a belief system that is not actually based on truth and reality. When people begin questioning those, those beliefs with evidences that undermine those beliefs, these people get agitated and angry. They get threatened. So yes, as we have solid truth-based beliefs, we have more peace and we can tolerate more. That's well said. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph. God said, you shall know the gods before me. Jesus said in the context of our basic needs, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we have all been told you will seek me and find me when you search with me for me with all your heart. Why does God say thou shalt know the gods before me? Because it's destructive. To have other gods. Yes. yes. Because he's a jealous God. Because he's a jealous God. Okay, and so, so there's lots of reasons given, and it shows the level of maturity where people are. And you can ask people, why does God say that? And their answer will give you insight into where they're functioning. Why does God say this over the gods before me? Because it's the commandment. Because it's the law. Because he's sovereign. Because he's creator. Because he's, he will have to punish if you break the law. That, that gives real insight to the mindset of the person. Now, now, let's be very clear. I believe God is sovereign. I believe he's the creator. I believe it's his right. I believe, I believe the commandment says that, okay? But none of those are the reasons why God says, I know the gods before me. It's because of design law, the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. In psychiatry and psychology, it's called modeling. And so what you admire, what you look at, what you esteem, what you choose to agree with, makes changes that we just went through in you and you are being changed by beholding we are changed and as the highest created beings on planet earth which we are created in the image of god there's nothing on planet earth created in a higher order than us anything on earth you worship will degrade you it will diminish you 
God wants the wants the human being to grow to the highest pinnacles of development possible. The only way that's possible is to worship the infinite one. As we worship the infinite one, we grow, we advance, we, we, we expand our capacities, our insights, our abilities, and this is what God wants for us. So, so having other guys before me is not his jealous need, he gets his feelings hurt if we don't. It's for our good that he says this. And, and I put this to you as an evidence. Think it through for yourself. Come to your own conclusions. It makes a huge difference in your internal world. If you view God says this because he loves me and wants my good and I'm going to be transformed in a very positive way from this versus if I don't, he's watching. And if I, oh, you know what? That, that TV I had on before the Sabbath, right after the Sabbath hours went, that becomes an idol for me. I've worshiped a false idol. God's going to have that in my book. He's got to punish me. Oh my, please, Jesus, put your blood to my account in heaven. Please, God, don't, don't hurt me for having the TV on after Sabbath hours. You see, this is a completely different internal experience. It's a fear-based experience. This is not love. This is not transforming people to be like Christ. Monday's lesson. The lesson title, Habit, Look for the Return of Jesus. And the lesson points out that Abraham looked for an eternal city and Paul looked for the return of Christ. And they're suggesting we should have the habit, live in the daily mind habit of looking for the coming of Christ. And I'm going to ask you, why is it important to look for the coming of Christ? Because putting it off is dangerous. I mean, every day I, I drive on these roads, and by the end of each year, it's up close to a thousand people who died just in Tennessee. So, so I think you've misunderstood the question. The question is not putting off your acceptance of Christ and being saved. We're living like today. So, so, so ha- you could be in a state of, I've surrendered to Jesus, I'm going to fulfill, you know, and I'm, I'm in a love relationship with him, I'm looking forward to being, but I am not anticipating a soon return. Now, I meant more in terms of, for you, you could die today and that would be his... And that seems to me much more a question of salvation than looking for the return of Christ. To me. Because if people put it off, then the next thing you know, they, like Christ is going to come, but it's going to be a long time off. A lot of times they'll put off their relationship with Christ. Okay. All right. If you don't anticipate it, you might not hasten it, and you might. Oh, so it could have an, an impact. And I want to think when I unpack that idea of hastening, yeah. If you truly look forward to the person who is coming, you're going to want to be ready to be looking forward to it, you know, if if my wife leaves to go on a trip, I'm anxious for her to come back. I'm looking forward to her coming back. I'm calling my wife and bugging her to come back. <laughs> Are you on your way yet? <laughs> because you love him so much, you're anxious to meet him. So, you look. so how many of you call Jesus and bug him to come? Please, Lord, can't you come today? (laughs) Yeah. So what impact does it have in your life to actually actively look for the return of the Lord? Does it make a difference in the choices you make to have a mindset that you're looking for the return of the Lord? I have a better personal relationship with him because I'm anxious for him to come back. You were suggesting hastening the day. Does looking for the Lord have any impact in what we do because we want to hasten the day. Paul, the, the New Testament talks about we can hasten the day. How, what are your thoughts about it? How can we hasten the day? 
Well, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so shall it be in the coming of the days of the Lord. So let's have more wickedness. Let's do more wickedness. And if we do more wickedness, then we can get Jesus to come. Is that, is that the plan? I, I, used to, I used to be taught and, and, and believe that by me talking to someone, by doing something, whatever, else, I was going to change God's mind and I would change his timetable so he'd come quicker. But in actuality, if I'm busy, if I'm busy doing what I'm supposed to be doing, time flies. We'll come to that in a moment. Joe? Well, I'm just going to say that it, to me it's a fulfillment of your desire to live in peace and harmony with everyone. And by him coming back, he's going to, he's going to rule the earth and do away with all the, the pain and suffering. And we don't have to worry about people breaking into schools and killing kids. That's true. Yes. In the Bible and in personal experience, if, if you really develop a close relationship with Christ and follow His way, it's so against the way of the world or even the way of the church that it brings that um, it brings things to a climax as far as that goes. Hastening can be a group of people who are so committed to God that the rest of the world is against them. Have you ever wondered why Come and Reason Ministries exists? primary reason for Come Reason Ministries is we want Jesus to come back. That's the primary reason. And we want to end the pain and the suffering and the death and the heartache of sin that's, ca- that's, that's causing so much corruption in the world. And we believe that if the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. And it's our view that Christianity has been infected with a distortion of the gospel of a legal, penal, punitive God that is a God we need to be protected from rather than the God we're seeking to be reconciled to. And therefore, the gospel's not gone to the world. And so our goal is to try to inspire people to reject this punishing, legal, penal God, accept the God that Jesus revealed, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the designer God, and the world will be lighted and he will come. That's the primary reason we want to hasten the day. Yes. One of the things that uh, people all around the world think about religion uh, because of Karl Marx is that it is the opioid of the people. So if you have been drugged out with bad views of God and of practicing religion, you need, there needs to be a, a very, very strong contrast in those who love God, want Him to come sooner, and who have better beliefs. Was Marx wrong? No. No, No, he's not. He wasn't wrong. See, is there actual opium? Real physical opium? Yes, an external substance that can get you high and can ruin your life. Is there something in your brain called endorphins and enkephalins that are brain-produced, body-produced opiates that stimulate opiate receptors that don't have any damaging effects but have healing effects? Okay, there is this opiate religious of the masses that actually ends up anesthetizing people and preventing people from growing into Christ-likeness, but that doesn't mean there isn't a true religion of Jesus Christ that actually transforms people. And so um, we don't want it to be either or, that, oh, religion is not opiate. It can be. But that's not God's religion. That's not the true religion. Tuesday's lesson talks about time and using it wisely. Can somebody tell me what time is? Think about that. What is time? No, uh, how we do seconds is an arbitrary measure. Hours, okay. Uh, But time, it's a dimension of reality. 
It's a dimension of reality in which events happen in a certain sequence, a before and an after. If you want to use the laws of thermodynamics, you might say time is what happens when things move towards disorder. The arrow of disorder is the unfolding of time. Things don't, you, you never see a glass of water move uh, from being tipped off of the, 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 um, the, the shelf onto the floor going this direction. You don't see an egg dropped on the floor moving back up into the container. See, life doesn't work that way. You don't open a can of soda and have the, the molecules in there go like this. You don't see them going back in and becoming more ordered. Time is a dimension of reality in which things, there's a before and there's an after. Things move in a certain direction. Newton, Isaac Newton, thought that time and space were completely separate and fixed entities. And we can move through time or we can move through space, but they have nothing to do with each other. Einstein overturned this idea and discovered that time and space were intricately connected. So imagine you can drive your car 60 miles an hour north, directly north. Now, if you change your direction, continuing at 60 miles an hour, and you're heading north, northeast, are you still traveling north at 60 miles an hour? Oh, word problem. <laughs> no, you have redirected some of your motion or energy or movement toward the east. You're moving to east now as well as north. So you're not heading north at 60 miles an hour anymore. You're now heading partially east. Some of your movement is going east instead of all north. Everybody see that? Okay, well, that's how time and space movement. You can move through space, physical space, or you can move through time. The, the more you're moving through space, the less you're moving through time. Let's see if I can make you understand this. Uh, you're standing and watching a parked car. You're standing and watching a parked car. You and the car are not moving. And thus, since you're standing still and the car still, all your movement is through time. None of your movement is through space. You're still. However, the car takes off and it drives away and now some of the car's movement and the driver in the car are moving through space. That means less of their movement is through time. They're actually passing through time slower than you are at that point. This is the law of relativity. And the law of relativity says that the combined speed of an object's movement through space and time always adds up to the speed of light. So the faster you move through space the slower you move through time. So if you could actually move at the speed of light, time would be still for you. Time would not unfold. Another way to say this, as you approach the speed of light, time slows down. See, if you're traveling due east, straight east now, how much of your energy or movement is going north? None. See, if all your energy is now moving through space, you have no energy moving through time. It says in the Bible, by the way, light, light, light moves at the speed of light. All of its energy is in motion. Therefore, light doesn't age. Light doesn't move through time. It moves through space. It says in, 1 Timothy 6.16, that God lives in unapproachable light. Does God move through time, or does he live outside of time? Hmm. In 1971, Joseph 
Hafiel and um, Richard Keating took, two, uh, took, took various cesium atomic clocks and they put some on the ground and they put some in a jet and the ones in the jet, they flew all the way around the world as fast as the jet could fly. And when they came back and compared the clocks, the ones in the jet had less time expired than the ones on the ground. More time passed for the clocks on the ground than the ones in the jet. Because they were movement. And therefore some of their energy was moving, so they didn't pass through time as fast. They went through time slower. Time's extremely interesting. Have you considered how much your views, your decisions, your perspectives, your choices are influenced by time? Imagine just for a moment, just for a moment with me, that everyone in this room will live as long as people did before the flood. You can expect to live 950 years. Which means basically everybody in this room has another 900 years to live. Just imagine that. 900 more years for your life. Consider that. (laughs) Now consider the choices you've been making in your life. Would you make different choices if you knew you had 900 more years to live? Would you have more children? No. (laughs) Would you build your house out of different material, knowing that it's not going to last for 900 years the way we build houses today? Would you you make different choices in the construction of the home you're going to live? would you stay in the same career? I, 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 this, is, this is my lifelong career. Might you have a schedule to change career? Every 40 years, I'm going to try something new. Would your retirement plan look the same? <laughs> Would you think more seriously about the impact your choices have on the environment and future generations? Probably not, because we are humans and we have, we live out our values Irregardless of often consequences. But we're selfish and we live out our values in ways that benefit us. But if you know what you know today, I would. I would make. Can you think how you might do something different? Have you just ever caught like 900 more years? Wow. That's mind boggling, isn't it? I mean, do you see how locked in we are to a certain time scale? We're really locked. It affects our thinking and our decision making. So, or would we be. Maybe what Wendell's suggesting, if we had 900 more years to live, would we get lazy, self-indulgent, think, hey, I don't need to get serious about God now. I can have fun. I can party. I can, I can experience all the pleasures the world has to offer. i got seven, 800 years to repent. <laughs> Do you think that's what happened before the flood? That they just became self-indulgent, thinking, ah, i got 900 years. I don't need to get serious about that stuff. And they didn't understand what I taught you. Building habits, making decisions, changing neural networks, solidifying and, and, and altering your internal being to the point you're beyond, actually. If you persist in certain patterns of behavior over the course of time, if you want to put it this way, you can sear your conscience, harden your heart. You can become um, <clears throat> insensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God, which is the movements of the Spirit of truth and love. So truth has no power on you because you're so settled into distortions and falsehood. Love has no power on you because you're so self-centered. And when you've got to the point that truth and love has no power on you, this is the unpardonable sin. This is the sin of grieving the Holy Spirit. This is the sin of changing yourself beyond the ability for the powers that God uses. And why does God use the power of truth and love? And if you want a text for that, Zechariah 4. 
Not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Why does God use the power of, spirit, of truth and love versus physical power? Why? What is it God wants from us? Love and trust. Can you get love and trust by using might and power? No, the only way to get love and trust is, we said earlier, a person convinced against their will of the same opinion still. You have to present the truth, leave the person free to contemplate and come to their and make the choice to align with. That's the only way God can win. And some people make the choices to be so settled into the lie, truth is offensive to them. Love is weak and sentimentalism. They hate it. I think that's what happened to the people before the flood. Like Mrs. White talks about people who have advanced years or is a hardened rock. Yeah, she has a comment made, something like, um, um, those of advanced years when it comes to new ideas, new truths, are often as a hardened rock. It has really no impact on them. <laughs> they're so settled into their views, they're so certain of the way, and they don't want to be unsettled by a new idea. Don't confuse me with the truth. Your discussion about approaching the speed of light and time slowing down, it led me to think about the Adam and Eve's original covering. You know, they were designed for immortality. They were designed to have a beginning and not an end, and their, their original garment was light. I don't know if it's symbolic or literal or... So let's bring that back up just in a second, because I think I didn't have that in my notes. I think it'll fit really good here in just a moment. That's really exciting. Um, so so now, now, now take the next step. I got you to think 950 years. But what does Jesus tell us that we're supposed... We're going to live how long? Okay, we can't get eternity. Try a billion years. You're going to live a billion years. A billion, billion years. A billion, billion, billion. Do you think in the hereafter time that we re- relate differently to time? Things still happen in a sequence, so time's still unfolding. But do we, our attitudes toward times change. Should we today as Christians think only about 80 years? Or should we think as eternal beings? Should we think, like Jesus said, those who believe in me will never die. They might sleep, like Lazarus slept. In the grave, but Jesus rose, rose him from the dead. Moses was in the grave, but Jesus took, brought him from the dead. He, those who believe in Jesus will never die. Should we think like eternal beings? Or should we think like mortal, only 80-year beings? Yes. It reminds me of an idea that actually Frederick Nietzsche proposed, and it was basically, if you had to live every decision that you made perpetually, eternally, or in eternity, would you live life the same way that you're living today? If when you had an outburst, you had to live through that outburst and seeing yourself doing that, would you do that the same way? You know, that's an interesting question. That actually is describing hell. Oh, yeah? That's a description of, of hell for many people. And that is, what you described wasn't if you had to live through the moment of your first child's birth, if you had to live through the, the moment of your wedding night, if you had to live through the time where you accepted Christ and felt the peace and the joy of his salvation over and over again. See, that's a wonderful experience to live through. What you described, what Nietzsche describes, is all the hateful, painful, disgusting things of life but that's torture to the soul. the benefit of recognizing the disgusting part that is in you, the selfishness. Right. That is already in yes. and you're trying to put out. So, so he uses that metaphor to try to get you to make better decisions, but the idea of re-experiencing all that pain is not the idea of eternity in God's kingdom. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't supporting him yeah. his no, I got as much as I was just saying. That could help people make better decisions if they thought about that. But that is one description that people have of hell, is the, well, the recurrent repetition of re-experiencing all the evil they've done. I think it's, it's that on a short scale. Until they give up the ghost, so to speak. Um, 
What is the most precious commodity? What's most valuable? Gold, money, land, or time? If we took the richest person in the world who's maybe worth $100 billion dollars, And they were dying from, uh, if you heard that, that the Russians just did another assassination attempt over their name, they have pl uh, a polonium uh, 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 um, radioactive exposure and he's got five days to live. And we could offer him restoration to health in another hundred years if he gave up his money. What do you think he'd choose? What's more precious to him, his money or his or time? What did Jesus say about gaining the entire world but losing one's soul? Yeah. In Revelation, I think it's 12 or something thereabouts, that talks about people were, uh, the saints were willing to give up their lives. But they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's it. Is that a perception? Because they're not giving up their life. I think it's a, it is a uh, evidence of the condition of their character. That fear and selfishness has been replaced with God's principles or law of love such that they don't love their self so much that they'll practice principles of survival they don't love their life so much as to shrink from death they're not fearful for their own survival they're not seeking to protect self uh, in fact they're self-sacrificial greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend so i don't think it has anything to do with time in this context i think in that context it has to do with character well, it could also be a realization that this it's irrelevant whether they go to sleep or not But I think it's deeper than that. When you saw the transformation of Moses and right. Paul, they were willing to give up their, their eternal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not only for friends, but for enemies. That's yeah. Right. So think about how we pass our use of time and how we pass through time. Not all people pass through time equally. Amen. Our choices. Until Jesus comes, every person on earth is aging. Not just chronologically getting older, but slow deterioration in abilities and vitality. And not all people have the same progression of that loss. Some people lose stuff a lot faster than other people. Why is it that some people pass through time at different rate of decay than other people? Genetics is a factor. The environment in which you live is a factor, and your choices are factors, all three. Our choices play a huge role in our aging, our slow loss of vitality and ability. Foods we eat, activities we engage in, the God that we worship, our relationships, so that we forgive or hold grudges, all and many, many more things will either accelerate or slow the aging process. In June, you guys know my book, The Aging Brain, Proven Steps to Prevent Dementia and Sharpen Your Mind, comes out, and we actually explore the evidence of choices you can make to slow that process. But we cannot, on this earth today, stop the decline. Time marches on. So we can't stop the passage of time. We can make choices that alter our movement through time. Healthier and less damaging. So another thought about time. Speed alters the passage of time. Is it possible, therefore, that time passes at a different rate in heaven than it does here? In Ezekiel's vision, he saw heavenly creatures. And how fast were they moving? It was Ezekiel 1.14. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. If, if that's literal, if they're actually moving at the speed of light, then time is not moving for them. Time is much slower there. Didn't God do that with Philip? 
and a eunuch. They transport, it's like, you know, beam me up, Scotty, beam me down. Okay? He was transported somehow instantly to another part of the, the, the globe. Psalms 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like the watch in the night. Second Peter 3, 8, 9, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What, do you, what are your thoughts about this? What is, it, is, is this just great poetic language? Or is it possible that time actually moves at a different rate in heaven than it does here? Time is relative to us physically here and on earth and in the universe or whatever. If you get into the spirituality of the Lord, you know, I don't know that time has any significance. And we just look judging on our, our basis, not what, uh, you know, eternity is, what, what, what does time mean? And, and you notice I said in heaven rather than with simply the Lord, because they're angelic beings in heaven uh, that are finite and created, and they're moving through time, and they don't live outside time like God himself does. So in heaven, is it possible in heaven that the way we measure time here on earth, it's only been six days since Adam fell? Is that possible? Days with the, uh, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. Because time is moving. So he's not slow in keeping his promise. It's only been six days since Adam fell and I'm almost, almost ready to come. See, I think there's truth in that. I think it's been a very short time. You could say we're in a time dilation field. If you, if you want more evidence for that, that this may be true, what you said a moment ago, bring that piece back in. Adam and Eve, what kind of clothing did they wear prior to their fall? Light. And there's evidence for that. What Moses coming off the mountain, what's Moses' face doing? At the Mount of Transfiguration, what's, what's uh, Elijah and, and Moses wearing? Okay, they're, they're as bright as the sun. It's very likely Adam and Eve in Eden were that way as well. And Jesus, of course, in his, in his uh, body that's still subject to death, is also now as bright as the sun. And this is very powerful evidence for evidence-based thinkers. And the evidence is that the fire of God's glory that is now radiating from Elijah, radiating from Moses, radiating from Jesus on transfiguration, and Moses' face uh, thousands of years earlier, th- this fire is not harmful. It didn't hurt him. There's no, there's no destructive power in the fire. The destructive power comes from sin. It comes from deviating from God's design. Jesus was in perfect accord with God's design. Therefore, the fire was perfectly healthy for him. The fire of God's glory. So Adam and Eve in Eden, beings in perfect harmony with God, I believe they were bright and glowing like this. Angels, every time you see them, same thing. But as soon as they sinned, one of the first things they said is, we ran and hid because we were afraid, so they got fear. Fear is an infection, part of the thing that we're not supposed to experience. Perfect love casts out fear. So they're afraid because we were naked. What happened? But where's the source of the light? So where did Moses, when he comes off Sinai, uh, where did, his face is now glowing. Where's the source of the glow from his face? God. Somebody in relationship with his creator. Right. So Adam and Eve broke the connection. It's kind of like a very primitive analogy, guys, okay? But a lamp in the wall 
connected to the source, is, is on. You unplug it, the light goes off. Okay? They disconnected themselves. And so, for me, this is evidence that our earth is in an artificial bubble of reality created by God's grace, disconnected with the, from the full unveiled glory of God that, God that the rest of the universe walks in. If you want some evidence for that, Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. This is what our... And look at the new Jerusalem and Revelation when the second coming comes and the earth is made new. It says there'll be no need for a sun and moon to light the place for God's presence will be its light. We will have this such brilliance of God's presence on earth and we'll live in it. But the earth right now is dark. We don't have that brilliance of the life-giving glory of God covering the entire planet. We are in an artificial bubble. We're in an artificial respirator of God's grace allowing our lives to continue while his plan of salvation is being worked out so that we can be restored to harmony with him and this earth can be brought back into the rest of harmony with the cosmos and then God's glory will flow here again. And so, uh, in Isaiah 33, it uh, says, The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling groups the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can... Uh, he, and the answer is, in the next verse 15, He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil... This is the man who will dwell on the heights. And this, it will be on the mountain fortress. Yeah, so, so the righteous are the one who spend eternity in the consuming fire and eternal burning, not the wicked, because the consuming fire and eternal burning, as the burning bush at Sinai, dedication of the temple, and so many other places, or how about Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. This is God's very presence, and the righteous live eternally in that presence, and this is what the text is supporting. So we don't need to fear the fire. We need to fear unremedied sin in us. That's what we need to fear. And Satan has twisted the thoughts so much in the, in, in the Christian and other, other religious world that more people are afraid of God who's trying to save them, him, them than sin in their life which is killing them. Uh, the lesson asks, how important then that we develop the habit of making the most of every moment we have been given? I'm going to close with this idea. This idea of making the most of every moment, does that mean that we are supposed to be working every moment other than the hours of sleep and the hours of the Sabbath? Other than that, you're supposed to be working. Is that what that means? Working for God's cause in some way. Actually, kind of, yeah. Just by the way you live your life. Not exactly preaching Jesus, 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 but just in the way that you display yourself. So if you mean that you're living healthy in harmony with God's design, then I will give you that. But that's not, what, you know, okay. So let, let's, let's go through that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that, that we have to live in harmony with God's laws. And one of God's laws is the law of restoration. What's the law of restoration? It's the law that when a finite being, which we are, we're not infinite, expends a resource... It must replenish the resource before it has more to expend. When you exhale, you've got to inhale. 
When you exercise physically, even the top Olympic athletes, after exercising, have to rest and recover or they will burn out. When you give of yourself mentally, emotionally to help others, you have to recover and rest. Even Jesus Christ, in his human body, and as a human being on earth, he was not accessing infinite abilities. He was living as a finite being. He took time away from his ministry to rest and recover and spend time with his father so that he would have the resources then to expend again. It's a law of restoration. And many of the, one of the tricks that the devil plays on good-hearted, righteous people, if he can't get them to choose evil, can't get them to just rebel against God, what he does is he gets them to not set healthy boundaries, so he exhausts them and burns them out so they can't do God's work. They end up, they end up emotional or physical or mental cripples being cared for by others because they're just burned out. And so... One of the principles then of using your time wisely is to make decisions in your life to keep your life in a steady state of balance so that you remain healthy to be a witness or so that you can help others. I uh, often think of young mothers who have young children. You can get a sense of this. Young mothers can never turn their, them, themselves off. They can't turn their mind off uh, during the day. They can't just unwind and relax and tune out. They're always on guard. They're always vigilant with small children around. They got to keep always that alertness going, watching for something. And it's exhausting. Young mothers need a break. They need time when someone else is watching the kids, not just to sleep, so they can just kick back and put their feet up and unwind and not have to be on. Isn't it right? Yes. So healthy, a healthy use of time is to consider What are the requirements that you need to build into your habits that are necessary to maintain wellness? And that's the obvious things like clean air and clean water and proper nutrition, but daily sleep of seven to eight hours at night. Seven to eight hours every night. A a weekly rest for your mind to put away the burdens of the world and come apart and spend time with God. Recreation and rejuvenation. Exercise for both physical, uh, physical and mental exercise. Meditation and contemplation of God. Time with your family. Time and time to minister to others and time to actually do work. All those things are essential, but there need to be a thoughtful, reasonable, organizational, planned structure, habit pattern that is sustainable for your whole life. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the most amazing creator, God of the entire universe. And and as as much as we are starting to kind of get glimpses of of your creation and what you've done, we know we're just barely scratching the surface of infinity. There's so much more we don't understand. But we do understand that you are good and that you are kind and that you are patient and that you are selfless and that you love us. And we ask now that your spirit of truth and love will come and lighten our minds, transform our hearts, help us to be solidified in the truths of your kingdom, to reject the distortions that may have held a place in our hearts and minds in the past and renew us to be like you so that we can go out, live a balanced, healthy life and be lights in this world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.